0: Welcome to Gippsland Anglicans on Air. We are starting something new this week. Welcome to Accessible Book Club. For the season of creation, we are reading together a book called Coming Home by Jonathan Cornford, an Australian author. It's been published by Morningstar Publishing, and it's a fantastic book that the publisher says it takes seriously the ways in which the shape of our household economy, our work, leisure, consumption, investment, and use of time impact our relations with others, with the earth, and with God. It provides a Christian vision of daily life that holds together the profound and the practical. Coming Home discusses subjects that are central to the lives of every person who knows that faith in Christ should make a difference. In Coming Home, Jonathan Cornford joins biblical theory with analysis of contemporary problems to help chart a practical, hopeful and life-giving path through troubled times. Today, we hear from Jonathan Cornford himself as he reads the introduction of Coming Home.
1: Coming Home, Discipleship, Ecology and Everyday Economics by Jonathan Cornford, published by Morningstar Publishing. Introduction, the problem of normal life. Not so long ago, a team of Martian anthropologists came to Earth to continue their long running but very discreet project of studying the apex species of their near planetary neighbor. As tends to happen in the Martian academic sector, there comes a time when everything important seems to have been studied inside out so that young Martian academics in order to find a niche for themselves, are forced into increasingly obscure areas of research. So it was that a couple of young aspiring young alien visitors took up the extremely obscure topic of studying a subgroup called Christians in the landmass known as Australia. In particular, these researchers wanted to know in what ways this subgroup was different from the rest of the population. What did these ingenious Martian inquirers uncover? As anthropologists, they were particularly interested in material culture. And as complete outsiders, they began with the very basics. Food, housing, transport, wealth, employment, leisure time, etc. In what ways did this Christian subgroup differ from the mainstream culture? Distressingly, they found very little that distinguished this group at all. Their daily habits of work, consumption and leisure seemed virtually identical to everyone else. Christians generally aspired to the same sort of large, cooled and heated housing. They spent large amounts of money on impressive TVs to which they devoted many hours of serious study. They avidly consumed and upgraded new communications technology to which they devoted perhaps even more time. They made high use of the private automobile, and they tended to overconsume food, which they knew to be ill matched to their biology. The Martians also noticed that Christians tended to suffer from the same sorts of malaises as the rest of the population, whether physical, social, or mental. While there were some small difference in rates of marriage breakdown, depression or ill-health due to lifestyle diseases, diseases, these were not statistically significant. They did notice that Christians tended to be grouped largely from the middle classes of society. They tended to have higher rates of tertiary education and they tended to vote for political groups which humans described as conservative. However, so did many others. This was hardly a distinguishing feature. Digging a little deeper, they began to notice some subtle differences from the rest of the population. Most significant of these was the fact that Christians attended a group meeting on average between once a week and once a fortnight, usually on Sundays, and they tended also to commit some financial resources to the ongoing functioning of this gathering. This seemed to be the prime identifying characteristic of Christians in Australia's. There were a few other differences. Christians tended to do more voluntary service in the community. They tended not to use smoked narcotics. And they tended to consume less imbibed narcotics, though more than they let on. They also made less public use of linguistic devices known as expletives And finally, the Martians noticed that Christians were more likely to restrain their sexual activity to one partner, although, again, perhaps less than they let on. On the whole, our alien observers came to the conclusion that being a Christian was equivalent to belonging to a sports club. It involved a certain level of time commitment and financial obligation, and it tended to influence language, the consumption of narcotics, and who people slept with, all of which tended to be true of sports clubs. Just like belonging to a sports club, being a Christian in Australia seemed to be yet another optional layer that one could add to the base of what seemed to be a largely non-negotiable material culture. What do we make of these observations of the Australian Christian? To be sure, their conclusions are not fair. There is much which our Martian anthropologists have failed to observe, and perhaps even more below the surface which they could not possibly see. Nevertheless, as external observers without any preconceived ideas, is there anything to be learned from them? There is one area where many human anthropologists, sociologists, social psychologists, and even theologians would agree with our Martian observers. If you want to discover what a group of people is really on about, what their core beliefs are, then you do not focus on what they say, but what they do. We live our lives according to our most deeply held beliefs and convictions, irrespective of whether they match up to our articulated beliefs and convictions. But if this is true, what is the significance of the fact that in 90% of their lives, Christians largely take their lead from mainstream culture? Does this mean that Christians basically hold 90% of the same core convictions and beliefs as the rest of mainstream culture, differing only on the margins? This is a critical question for two very important reasons. The first is that in Australia as in the rest of the Western world, Christian belief is in crisis. Whether we are looking at the numerical decline of certain denominations, the rarity of conversions, the low rates of children following in the faith of their parents, or the uncertainty of so many who remain in the pews, or even the pulpit, it seems clear that the dominant version of Christian faith is no longer cutting it. In so many ways, Christianity just seems to be irrelevant to the existential, ethical and lifestyle challenges that confront us from every angle. The question of how we live and what we believe is a pressing one for another reason. If we say that in 90% of their lives, Christians basically live according to mainstream culture, then we are acknowledging a massive moral problem. It has been evident for some time that normal life, according to the model of Western consumer society, has become untenable. Indeed, there are three large generalisations we can make about our way of life. One. The way that we live cannot be sustained by the planet. Two. The way we live perpetuates global structures of injustice and inequality. Three, the way we live is no good for us either. I will not trouble you with evidence for these statements here, as the rest of this book is filled with them. But most people reading this will probably already know something about climate change, or species extinction, or global inequality, or labour conditions in the developing world, or family breakdown, or the mental health epidemic. Most people reading this probably already know something of the truth of each of these three statements, even if they have not been considered in such bleak terms or taken altogether. It turns out that somehow faith in Christ has not prevented us from being implicated in a destructive, An idolatrous economic system. Put together, all of this can be overwhelming and the instinctive response is either towards denial or paralysis. Can we find a way to live with such a stark assessment of our predicament and yet still move forward in hope? In my previous book, Coming Back to Earth, I suggested that the seeming thinness of modern Christianity in the face of the massive challenges facing humanity is, in large part, a product of the privatisation and over-spiritualisation of faith. Over the last few centuries, the dominant understanding of Christian faith has been one that has been largely abstracted from the world of money, work, consumption and nature. Instead, the message of the Bible has been assumed to be one that is primarily concerned with the interior state of one's soul and its final destination after death. Pie in the sky when you die. And thus, precisely during those centuries when Europe was undergoing an economic revolution that transformed social relations within countries, transformed economic relations between countries, and the nature of humanity's exploitative relationship with the earth, Christians were, on the whole, though there has always been a counter-trend, losing the insight that their faith had anything to say about it all. Commerce, politics and economics were spheres where Christian faith had little to contribute, other than the injunction to be upright, honest and to work hard at what you did. Through the 19th and 20th centuries, Western civilization drove the development of a world economy that was predicated on economic exploitation and ecological destruction, and that in turn came to drive a culture of mindless and frenetic consumerism. All of this largely happened with the tacit and sometimes explicit blessing of the church. Now, at the beginning of the 21st century, we are waking up to a nightmare in which life in the affluent West, even for many Christians, is confusing, conflicted and vacuous, in which global economic equality is becoming ever more serious, and all this on a planet in the midst of an ecological crisis. No wonder so many are finding the platitudes of polite Christianity a little hard to swallow. We might say that Christianity in the West has had its head in the clouds, and now it is being brought back to earth with something of a thud. Does this mean that Christianity has proved to be fundamentally flawed and should be dispensed with? On the contrary, as G.K. Chesterton once said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting It has been found difficult and left untried. If we open the pages of the Bible, we find that it consistently and powerfully warns that the failure to observe limits in economic life results in the fracturing of society and creation and alienation from God. The concern is not just that our economic conduct in the world be ethical and just, although it is certainly that. Rather, there is a deeper recognition that our economic lives reveal our deep allegiances. Most fundamentally, our economic lives reveal who or what we really worship. Thus, we find that in both the Old Testament and New, discussion of economic behaviour is frequently coupled with discussion of idolatry. Underpinning all of this is a fundamental principle that runs through the whole Bible. The material world and the spiritual world are not separate and independent realms. Rather, they are inextricably intertwined. Spiritual movements have material consequences, whether good or bad, and material movements have spiritual consequences, whether good or bad. At the foundation of the Christian gospel is the conviction that God's word to humanity, the thing that God has to say to us, has become flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That is, the thing that God wanted to say to humanity could not just be accomplished by a voice from heaven or words on a page. It required a whole life to say it, from birth to death to resurrection. And that is because the gospel, literally the good news, concerns our whole lives, both spiritual and material. More than that, we are told that Jesus came to us because God so loved the world. And the Greek word used for world, cosmos, means the whole created order. We are told that through Jesus, God is reconciling the whole cosmos Back to himself. The foundation of the Lord's Prayer and the thing that Jesus' life embodied was Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Indeed, the ultimate hope of the New Testament is not that human souls will finally attain heaven after death, but that we will enjoy resurrected life on a restored earth in which heaven is fully present. And at the heart of all of this is the invitation to enter into fullness of life, the life that really is life, which means to enter into the communion of love between God, humanity, and creation. This basic perspective is critical to maintain when we encounter the Bible's various teachings on material and economic not life, we need to understand that they are not simply ethical hoops for us to jump through to make us good and just. Rather, they are fundamentally concerned with our participation in the communion of love, which is salvation and life itself. When we come back to earth, we find this is the place where God has been waiting for us Join him all along. In coming back to Earth, I suggested that what the world needs of us and what is best for us are the same thing. And right now, the health of the world and the health of our souls require that we somehow begin to make a break with the culture of consumer gratification that has reared us and shaped us. As Paul puts it, we need to conform no longer to the pattern of this present world. And to do this requires a reordering of our household economies. In my first year of high school in the 1980s, home economics, home ec, was a compulsory subject that everyone did for one semester. It included making a macrame owl, sewing a pencil case, cooking a meal, mine was chicken chow mein, and baking a cake, mine was Chocolate. It was what was known amongst us students as a bludge subject. As a fairly chauvinistic young male with an academic bent, home ec was a subject I held in low esteem, along with the girls, and it was only girls, who went on to choose it as an elective in the following years. It didn't help that my chocolate cake, about which I was secretly quite excited, completely failed. So there is not a small amount of irony in the fact that I've now come to the conclusion that home economics is central to the reconciling of economics and ecology that lies at the heart of humanity's great challenge in the 21st century. More than that, I have come to the conclusion that reclaiming a Christ-centred practice of home economics is central to our own spiritual health and to our witness in the world. The Greek word for house, oikos, is the root word from which we get economics, oikonomia, ecology, oikologia, and ecumenical, oikumene. Economics describes the management and ordering of the work, consumption, and finances of a household. Although economics as a discipline has now been abstracted to describe how we manage our affairs at the national and global levels, individual households still form the base unit of analysis. Ecology describes our attempts to understand the great household of nature, and in particular to understand the interdependent relationships that support the functioning of that household. We have tended to think of economics and ecology as two separate spheres, when in fact the human economy exists entirely within the great household of nature and still depends entirely upon it, even if modern urban life gives us the illusion that we are somehow independent of nature. Ecumenism describes the movement towards unity within the household of God, usually referred to as the Church. It is based on the recognition that belonging to Christ draws us so deeply into relationship with others that we are members of a single body. Generally, this last household, the church, is seen as having little to do with the other two. Moreover, in practice, the church even tends to have little to do with the ways in which its members run their homes. However, if we accept, as the Apostle Paul tells us, that faith in Christ, faith in Christ requires presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, that is conforming our day-to-day bodily and material existence to the way of Jesus, then we must understand our individual households as not only the base of our participation in economy and ecology, but also the core site in which we enact or deny our membership in the household of faith in the hundreds of choices we make every day. What's more, if we understand the household of faith as merely the first fruits of the great reconciliation that God intends for the whole created order, but is yet to be accomplished, then a fuller understanding of the household of God should expand to encompass the whole household of nature, the human economy that exists within that, and our own individual households within that. Thus, rather than a group of independent spheres, we have a picture of a series of concentric circles that comes down to our own homes. The question is, when we ask what is at the centre of that circle, will we find Christ there? The purpose of this book is to provide a tool for Christian households seeking to live more responsibly. But its greater purpose is really to help us live well, and that requires the presence of Christ. For this reason, this book addresses seven areas of our day-to-day lives from which we have generally kept God out. Our practice of hospitality, our work and leisure, our consumption, Our relationship to nature, our financial giving, and our lending and borrowing of money. These seven areas of household economics may not give exhaustive coverage of our material lives, but they cover most of it. The aim of this book is to try to stop seeing these seven areas through the lens of normal life and to try to see them through a biblical lens. The first step in this process is simply to ask the question, what's the problem in this area of life? Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God began with a call to repent. The Greek word for repentance, metanoia, means to take on a new mind and a new way of seeing the world. Whereas repentance has often been misunderstood as simply an attitude of self-condemnation and guilt, it is more fully an exercise in seeing clearly. How we see the world determines how we live in it. Jesus' call to repentance is therefore a call to throw off the lens of normal life and to take another look. In each of the seven areas of household economics, we will consider the ways in which the normal received practice of these areas reflects deep seams of brokenness and disconnection, resulting in negative impacts upon our neighbours, the earth, and ourselves. The second step of the process is to ask what does the Bible say on this matter? One of the fundamental affirmations of this book is that the Bible not only has a great deal to say about our material lives, but that this teaching is integral to the whole message. To subtract the message concerning our material lives is not to have understood the biblical message at all. This does not mean the Bible always has clear and simple instructions that can easily translate into modern life. Anyone who has spent time studying the Bible knows it is not an easy book to read, and how we use different bits of the Bible requires some wisdom and discernment. When we read in Exodus that anyone who profanes the Sabbath shall be put to death, we generally acknowledge that a literal reading of this text would not be wise or helpful. Much of our wrestling with the Bible involves trying to get beneath the packaging of ancient circumstances, language and custom to try to find the principle at stake. If we then begin to find this principle being reaffirmed in different forms throughout the Bible, we know we have something that deserves serious consideration. The third step of this process is then to ask, how can this be applied today? Once again, applying principles we derive from the Bible to life within a mind-bogglingly complex global economy is not easy or straightforward. Many of the major challenges of modern living could never have been conceived in biblical times. Back then, the idea of fair trade applied to -to face-to-face transactions, and could never have envisaged a global supply chain with multiple layers of abstraction and removal. The Old Testament strictures around credit and interest on loans could never be applied in a global economy founded on debt. The challenge for us is always to move beyond trying to identify rules to follow and instead to try to get at the heart of the matter, to apply biblical discernment intelligently, creatively and realistically to the circumstances we find thrown at us. It requires information, wisdom, and discernment. And even then, the question of what we ought to do is not always clear. The purpose of this book is not to provide definitive answers for how we must live, but rather to begin the process of fleshing out the challenges and some possible responses. The following chapters apply this threefold process, asking, What is the problem? what does the Bible say, and how can we apply this today, in each of the seven areas of household economics. At the end of each chapter, I provide a list of concrete examples of steps some people have taken in an effort to translate Christ into that area of household economy. I have included these because I have come to understand that while some people readily translate concepts into practice, others need to get down to the nitty-gritty to make sense of something. It must be emphasised, however, that these are examples and not benchmarks by which to measure oneself. Neither should they be considered as the right or moral thing to do. Rather, they are all provisional undertakings made by some people based on the information available and made within the context of a particular set of life circumstances. The most appropriate step for your household may well not have been considered within these pages. The process of making changes can be fraught. Some become paralysed with the perceived enormity of the challenge, while others leap in too quickly, taking on too much. However the most important thing is not what changes we actually achieve – what we achieve is so dependent on our particular life circumstances. But rather, it lies simply in beginning to open up these areas of life to God, allowing our spiritual lives to fill out our material lives, allowing Word to become flesh. Perhaps one of the hardest spiritual challenges of this process comes when we see, as we inevitably must, how big the gap is between our own lives and the principles the Bible is calling us to live by. Opening up a biblical lens on life is painful and this can instinctively lead us to want to put away such a lens. But it is fundamentally this pain that God wants to open up in our lives because it is the pain of reality. This is the place we must all come to because it is only from here that God's healing and God's new possibilities begin. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is the beginning of hope and abundant life, the beginning of an exciting new challenge and creative purpose to life.